Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. I know that we are competing with the first day of sunshine and the beach. Um, and I think to this evening, this afternoon, we're talking about an incredibly important subject. Um, so we're coming into land on our series on unspoken issues. And today we're talking about um, mental health, spirituality and the church. And um, again, I'm incredibly excited that Rob has come from Edinburgh to speak with us today. Uh, he is driving straight back afterwards. Uh, so just be aware that he does have to leave. Um, but just thank you so much all for ignoring the beach and coming to join us. And thank you, Rob, for giving your time and your energy to come and speak to us. Should we just quickly pray before we start? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this session, Lord. We pray for everybody in this room. We pray for Rob, our speaker, and we also pray for those listening to this uh, recording, Lord, that they may be blessed by what they hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, thank you. I, I was always amazed, you know, the sun doesn't make all mental health problems go away. Um, I had this fantasy that um, the Lord might call me to work in Australia, and then I thought, well, what would I do for a living? Because they're all so happy over there. But, of course, the reality is that Australians, New Zealanders, have a fair range of mental health problems at all. And although, you know, one day of sun perhaps helps a little bit, th these are not kind of problems that are going to go away just because the sun's out. Um, so what we want to do today is just kind of a fairly sort of almost a wrap-up session. I mean, those of you who've been coming to some of these sessions during the week have covered lots of material. Um, so the last thing I want to do is make it a big, heavy, sort of stodgy session. So um, what I was planning to do is to talk for about five, ten minutes at the beginning and then really spend most of the sessions just taking some questions and answers kind of stuff. And um, you could, within reason, you can ask about anything, although I may choose not to answer. Um, but um, we're sort of focusing particularly on, you know, the role of the local church in, in mental health problems, because I guess that's where hopefully many of you are, and also perhaps many of you are involved in, in pastoral ministry. And, you know, what do you do when, when someone in the church sort of says, I'm hearing voices or, or something like that? Or, of course, the church has got a huge role in, in outreach as well. You know, we know that the government has has finite resources and i think you know the, the the church is able to sort of move into areas that a the government can't get into or people won't go to secular mental health services but that secular mental health services are not designed to meet all of the emotional needs of our communities they're designed perhaps to look after the very ill but the very ill need other types of looking after as well and they're certainly not particularly good at um looking after those who have perhaps longer term kind of kind of problems and unless they're of particular natures but there's definitely gaps in that so thinking a little bit about about how that can work together um just a few sort of sort of things just to mention as well um we had a session yesterday on on worry and um the worry book amazingly has has sold out in the bookshop so i know some of you were looking for that and couldn't find that but there's going to be some copies of that at htb bookshop as well and there's going to be some Oh, right. Well, we've got a whole new stock. There we are. Go, go to the shop. So there's, there's tons there. Um, what you will also have got in front of you on the far side of a flyer, and just a video playing as you came in, is about an organization called Mind and Soul that I'm one of the um, di directors of. And there's basically, the, the most simple thing is there's a whole load of stuff on a website. So if you want to find out, you know, what is a Christian approach to X, Y, or Z, do go and have a look. Um, if you have written any good articles yourself, please send them to us. Generally speaking, we will host most stuff, providing it's 
roughly in, in the right kind of direction. You know, we're, we're very much a sort of sharing organisation. So um, you don't have to be an expert by any means. We want testimonies, stories, there's forums, all that sort of stuff as well. And there's also audio from all of our sort of conferences and speaking as well. Um, and some events that we run. So that, that, that's the main thing from them. But I, I was loving... Um, Mary Claire's sort of blurb for this one. I think it says something on the lines of you're guaranteed a stimulating afternoon, but it doesn't actually say what I'm going to talk about. So congratulations, you've had a stimulating afternoon. We can all go to the beach. Um, but no, I mean, I think, you know, this is a really important topic and I think I, I don't want to sort of take the time from you. I want to hear your questions. So just going to run through a, a, a few kind of things, but perhaps before we do that, you can maybe just turn to the person next to you, just groups of two or threes and just sort of say, Start thinking, partly because I know that when I ask for questions later, only the extroverts are going to put their hands up. So if you're an introverted person, now is your time to seed your question in the head of the extrovert next to you. But I also just want to get you sort of thinking about the topic. So just two or three minutes now, chat to the people next to you and say, what are the questions that you want to ask today? Okay? Off you go. Okay, if you want to wrap up, I'm, I'm going to be showing some slides from the front here. Um, you don't have to be able to see the screen, but I know it's quite shiny. So if any of you really, really, really want to see the screen, move into the middle section. Um, but we will put these slides, both the slides from today and the slides from yesterday, on, onto the Mind and Soul website. Um, probably do that over the weekend, so you'll be able to get those, um, get those next week if you want to. But... Um, just a little bit of it. I'm, I'm going to come back and get some sort of feedback from your groups and ask for questions in a second. But just by setting the scene, you know, this is called Why is the Issue Unspoken? And, um, or about unspoken issues and thinking, well, well, why? Why can't we talk about mental health problems in the church? Um, and just thought I'd just give you a little bit of a tiny weenie history lesson. You, you might not be a history person, but a lot of this goes back a few hundred years to when people were sort of thinking about how universities were set up and how academics and you know researchers and doctors and medicine and that kind of thing was developing and what tended to happen was that universities ended up in two halves so you had an arts faculty of some kind and in the arts faculty you found um, you know art obviously but literature that kind of stuff and in the arts faculty was where theology tended to end up and um, obviously that was how universities started out is, is arts and divinity really but then the, the science sort of side of uh, study came in and universities often developed a science faculty and that was where um, you would get a, a BSc maybe rather than a BA it was where engineering, technology, biology and of course medicine sort of ended up so you had this division in the training between medicine on one side and psychology and, and theology on the other side and the, the, the two have never really sort of been together since that time despite the fact that if you go back a thousand or so years it, it was the um, churches that ran the hospitals but then when science came in it ended up in a very different part of the university and the church I think maybe didn't think this through too hard and just sort of unconsciously sort of started following that, that, that kind of way of looking at it. And still it's like, um, well, what do you do? Is this a, a spiritual problem or is this a um, sort of biological problem that you need to go and see your doctor and get a tablet about? And there's been this kind of divide ever since and it's just there unconsciously in everything we do and it's never really come back together. And um, psychology, you know, in some universities you've got experimental psychology in the science side and then you've got um, counselling psychology maybe in the arts side and then 
they're sort of split across the two and psychiatry is split across the two. I mean, I'm a doctor by background and training. I did science A-levels. So it took me a fair bit of work to actually try and learn some theology, think about how these various different things get together. And I had to sort of undo 600 years of division. So that's one of the reasons why it's separated. And what that, one of the sort of um, triggers that begin to sort of bring this into being and really sort of landed almost psychiatry and so on within medicine was, was this incident. And you, you might have seen the film, the, uh, the Madness of King George. And what happened here was that George III, again, several hundred years ago, became mad with a, with a psychotic illness, basically. He developed something called acute porphyria, which effectively gives you symptoms a bit like schizophrenia, and he became completely mad and ultimately had to be um, taken away from the throne. And there was a slight problem because before that time, mental illness was the preserve of the clergy and they would look after all mental health problems. But the king was the head of the Church of England. So it's a bit like going and saying to your boss, you're mad, and I'm going to remove you from your job. You know, it's not really something it's possible for you to do. So, so this was one of the first times in history when doctors began getting involved in, in mental illness. And it was from that time on, really, that doctors began to have an involvement in running asylums, in getting involved in psychiatry. Freud, of course, was a neurologist when he started out. He was a brain scientist before he got into psychoanalysis, and doctors were very much there. Um, the irony in the film, of course, is the guy who got the madness of King George better was a, was a priest-turned-behavioral scientist. But the, the, the date of the film was that sort of starting point from psychiatry and mental illness getting very medicalized. And that was a good thing in some ways because it meant that to a certain extent we were able to say this is an illness. Whereas in the past, people thought this is a sin, and you need to repent, or this is a weakness, and you need to pull your socks up. So, so doctors getting involved was good to a certain extent, because people could say, hang on, I'm sick, I need help, and there is some help available. But it was this sort of very much an either-or kind of way of thinking about it. So you start thinking about, what well, if you've got someone sitting in front of you, for example, with, let's say, something like depression, people... Different groups have got different ideas as to what's going on. So some people might say, oh, it's in your neurons and you've got a a lack of serotonin in your brain or something like that. Um, This chappy here is a guy called Carl Rogers, who is a a humanist therapist, you know, person-centered counseling. And he would say, well, actually, the person hasn't had enough love. They haven't had enough opportunities to express themselves and develop themselves. And all they need is talking space. Um, a Christian might say, oh, well, it's a spiritual problem. They need to understand the father love of God more or something like that. And uh, 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 somebody with a social thing may say, well, actually, this person is isolated. They haven't got enough friends. They're busy doing their job, but they haven't actually got a social fabric or relationship matrix around them. So these different people have got lots of different ideas. And I think you can see how they're all right to a certain extent, but... People love their own bandwagons. They know about their area. When all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's that kind of approach. So if all you've got is tablets, all of these things are brain problems. And, of course, you start scanning brains. You start doing tests. You find biochemical abnormalities in the brains of people with mental health problems. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's a nerve problem. And you, you find spiritual struggles doesn't necessarily mean it's a sin problem. Do you, do you see what I mean? Everything, people sort of champion their own little bit. 
and they come up with, well, what's the answer? Well, a brain problem needs medication. A social problem needs reintegration. Um, a, a sort of internal psychological problem needs counseling or sharing in some shape or form. And a spiritual problem needs prayer or a miracle or something like that. And again, all these people, they sell their own solution because that's the way humans work. They've got an idea. They've got an answer. You know, Christians do that a bit, don't they, as well. will make you feel guilty in order to sell you the gospel. And we all know that's bad evangelism, but Christians do that consistently. And I think, you know, sometimes with their approaches to how we deal with mental health problems, they think, well, I had a really good time on antidepressants, therefore you ought to have it as well. doesn't mean they're right or wrong, but, but people sort of sell what they know best. And... Just to sort of get you thinking a little bit about this, I'd like you to get back into the groups that you were doing before and have a bit of a think as Christians. And this is just an example. We're just going to explore one of those quadrants. We could do this for each of those four areas. But have a bit of a think as to which of these medications would you be prepared to take as a Christian and why? So the first thing is some kind of analgesia, some kind of painkiller. And I want you to think about paracetamol, but also about morphine, a really strong painkiller, okay? And then maybe have a think about chemotherapy. If you've got life-threatening cancer, would you take chemotherapy? Have a bit of a think about anti-epileptic medication, so medication to stop seizures. Have a bit of a think about the morning-after pill. And then have a bit of a think about the combined oral contraceptive pill, which is one of the sort of possibly questionable types of, of, of contraceptive pill that's available. So, so have a bit of a think about them in your small groups and say, as a Christian, would you take those things? And just so we don't spend ages on this question, because I want to leave time for your chatting. Over this side of the room, can you start at the top of the list? Painkillers, chemotherapy, this side of the room, start with the bottom of the list. So that is things like the contraceptive pill, morning after pill. You guys think about the middle, so chemotherapy, anti-epileptic medication. Is that... Is that okay? In your groups, have a little chat about that. Okay. Great. So you guys over here were... The question I was going to ask is, would you, would you take paracetamol? And um, why, why would you take it? Why wouldn't you take it? You know, do you have any problems taking it? No? So you're all happy taking paracetamol. Good. Okay. What about, what about morphine? What about a really strong painkiller? You got any questions about that? Take it. Take it. The more of it, the better. <laughs> Any reservations about morphine? Right. Okay. So something about, you know, it might dull your mind or take over your mind or something. And, and it's addiction problems. Yeah. yeah. Although possibly, you know, end stages of cancer. But, you know, it, it, there's questions about it, you know, aren't there? That's a very fair point. Yeah. So the addiction's not as much of a problem in the end stages of cancer, but, you know, does it dull your mind, etc.? Yeah. Okay, what about you guys sort of here? We're talking about, um, oh, what the other one? Um, chemotherapy. Would, would you have chemotherapy? If you need to or, or no? And the person who said, can I just ask why no? Does that have interest? Okay. Right. It is, and it, it, it is very destructive, chemotherapy, isn't it? And I agree with you, you know, by all means try prayer and, 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 and healing first. But I think some people would possibly say that the destruction is worth it, if that makes sense. I mean, you, you, you may not, but, but many people would say that. Yeah, okay, all right. So we're just thinking in the middle, anti-epileptic medication. 
Would you take that? Generally speaking, sort of nods. Any questions about it at all? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and there are side effects to anti-epileptic medication. You know, sometimes there's sort of physical side effects, you know, hair loss, weight gain. Sometimes it can be cognitive, brain, brain side effects. But most people, it seems, would, would take it. Um, okay, we're after morning after pill. Take the morning after pill. Mm. And can I, those of you who are saying no, can I ask why not? Just very briefly, why wouldn't you take it? Yes, that's a very that's a very a very fair point. Okay, so you've got an ethical objection to to taking it. Yeah. Okay, and yourself? Definitely. No, no, no. And I think that's a very fair point. And I think that's going to you know I'll, I'll wrap all this up in a little bit. But I think you know one person has an ethical objection. The other person says, well, the ethics might change because my daughter was raped. And in, in that situation, do, do the ethics change or do the circumstances change, etc.? Yeah. But it, it's an ethical objection, perhaps, rather than an objection based upon side effects or, 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 or something like that. Um, combined pill. Happy taking the combined pill? Depends how much you know about different types of pill. Well, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a combination pill. I mean, there's a number of different types of contraceptive pill. And the reason why I've chosen it is that it's one of the ones where some of the embryos fertilize but don't implant whereas other types of pill stop the stop the um egg forming if if that makes sense so so i put it up there as sort of from a christian point of view one of the slightly more ethically contentious um types of contraceptive but a lot of people are happy to take contraceptive pills and the reason why i put that list sort of up there is that actually Every single one of these is controversial. Now, this is a bit sciencey, so I'm not expecting you to understand it. But some people weren't going to take anti-epileptic medication because it had some kind of effect on the brain. But actually, paracetamol acts on the brain to modulate your response to pain. So those of you who are happy taking paracetamol but not happy to take other stuff that affected the brain... It's not necessarily as simple as that. That's the point I'm making. Um, also, some of the things people said they weren't prepared to take, like, for example, the morning after pill, certain types of contraceptive, I'd say it's perhaps an ethical objection. And the reason why I'm sort of putting this up here is, is to sort of make us think a little bit about what is the church's attitude to antidepressants? Because a lot of Christians would say, I wouldn't take antidepressants. But perhaps without thinking it all through. So they may say, well, I wouldn't take antidepressants because it has an effect on my brain. But they would take paracetamol, which has an effect on their brain. Or they may say, I wouldn't take antidepressants because ethically or theologically I would look to to prayer first, which is not wrong, but they perhaps would take other medication rather than looking to to, to prayer first. In, In all the years I've been doing seminars, I've only ever found one person who absolutely refused to take paracetamol of, of, of any kind and you know that was because they, they believe that strongly that, 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 that prayer should be the first solution but most people are happy to sort of engage with medication to a certain degree and I suppose the point I'm making is that our approach to antidepressants perhaps ought to be slightly more flexible than a yes-no situation. So, for example, if you've tried the prayer, if you're um, happy that it might affect your brain, I mean, that's what it's designed to do. But um, from an ethical point of view, you can sort of say, well, actually, I would take it in this situation because I've, I've, I've tried therapy. I've tried scripture and healing. I have tried other things. Perhaps now is the time to take something which does directly affect my brain and that we shouldn't automatically rule that out just because we're Christians.
I didn't particularly ask you a question about what do you think about antidepressants in this room, but my guess is that there's a spectrum of views. And also I know that in every church, even, even the good churches, most people are not exactly going to stand up and say, wow, I've just started antidepressants. Whereas people may say, I've got cancer, I've just started chemotherapy. Or they may say things like, I'm having a hip replacement next week because I've got arthritis in my hip. So even if you may be saying, yes, Christians can take antidepressants, we're quite a long way from people being openly able in the fellowship to say, yes, I take antidepressants. And I know lots of people who take antidepressants who who don't talk about it because they're really not kind of sure what sort of answer they're going to get. Okay. And I suppose my, my, my point coming back to this is they do all have their place. You know, pills have their place. Social integration has its place. Therapy has its place. Prayer and healing has its place. And that we shouldn't necessarily say that one is primary. Um, silly situation. Why are you sitting on chairs rather than sitting on the floor? Didn't Jesus sit on the floor when he taught his disciples? Um, I'm making a silly point, but, you know, we don't, we don't poo-poo chairs just because they're the product of science and engineering, and perhaps we shouldn't poo-poo sort of biological or psychological approaches just because they are the consequence of secular science, be that psychological science or, or be that medical science. And I think sometimes as Christians we can have views on things without really having thought sort of where they come from. Okay. So when we're thinking about tackling some of these unspoken issues. I just want to sort of finish off by saying, well, you can tackle it at three levels. One is relatively easy as a church. You know, one thing you might want to think about in terms of how to raise profiles of, you know, this, this kind of topic in your church is have access to a good list of counsellors. And on the Minosol website, we're setting up a, a list of counsellors. It's there at the moment, although the page is still under development. But minosol.info forward slash London counsellors is a growing list of, of, of counsellors, many of whom are known to the HTB staff, who basically we think are, are pucker, reliable, etc. There's also a big and growing database of, of other counsellors who, just for sheer numbers, we haven't been able to check out quite so robustly, but they're all Christian in their orientation. Then you might have to think about groups and having some groups within your church. And I think there's kind of two types of groups that you can have. So, for example, at HTB, there's now a a depression course that runs occasionally, which I think is absolutely fantastic. And it's a great place to start, but it's a real shame if that's where it finishes, because we don't want a depression course over there for all the depressed people. What we actually want is every single kind of area of the church having embedded pastoral care within it embedded attitudes to correct attitudes to mental health problems and that kind of thing and I know that's something that many of your churches are working towards which is great is you know from time to time you need a special setting but the special setting should be set up after or as well as you have addressed the general setting and I think that leads on to the idea of actually saying one of the reasons that we, this is an unspoken issue is that we need to be changing some of the attitudes and ideas within the whole church. And we've been talking about a concept called mental health friendly churches. And this is something that we've been working on with colleagues at uh, an organization called Through the Roof, who specialize in physical disability, wheelchairs and um, you know, men, men learning disability as well. And I think one of the things they would say very clearly is you are not a disability-friendly church just because you have a ramp and a hearing aid loop installed. It goes far beyond that. Likewise, you are not a mental health-friendly church because you have a counsellor. 
It's a great start, but it doesn't make you a mental health-friendly church. And thinking, this is a little bit small, but I'll, I'll just read them out. Thinking about some of the sort of criteria of a mental health-friendly church. This is where we're at at the moment, and this is up for discussion. It, we don't give out badges or awards or anything, but this is something for a church to work towards. And it is small, so I'll just read it out. People with difficulties feel they belong whether or not they're able to take part in or attend meetings. And it's great if they can attend meetings, but if they can't for whatever reason, they still need to feel as though they belong. A contact team is available who champion issues around disability, health, etc., and are able to signpost to local services. You know, churches cannot do everything, and you ought to know what's available locally in terms of counsellors, drop-in, good GPs, that kind of stuff. Um, information's available in alternative format for different needs, large print, audio, electronic. And that's a general kind of thing. You know, so much of our church is set up for fairly literally, what's the word, literate, fairly literate people um, who can read, who like social groups, like small groups or Bible study groups, you know, absolute nightmare if you've got social phobia or agoraphobia or something like that, and if you're not in one, you're sometimes made to feel a bit of a second-class citizen, come on, step up to the mark, join in, etc., so we need to have a range of formats of information, a range of formats of um, places where people can go and feel part of. Um, Physical adjustments do sometimes need to be made, and they should be willingly made to help those with different needs. I mean, nothing worse than having a sort of place for the wheelchair, you know, two-thirds of the way back, because that's where a pillar was moved, and that's where the gap is. You know, the person with the wheelchair should be asked, do you want to be at the front? Do you want to be, you know, I mean, anyone else can choose any seat in the place. So let's take the same kind of approach there. Um, There should be, I think, a group of people in particular, but also generally in the church, you know, people giving their time sacrificially to listen, to respond to pastoral issues. Also somewhere, some kind of sort of pastoral care strategy and and policy. And I, I think I'd suggest all churches ought to have some kind of policy. We've put a draft one up on the Mind and Soul website that you can take, adapt, etc. It means that you're ready for the difficult issues when they arise. So, for example, when somebody in the church is... Um, and I probably use the word when rather than if, because I think this will happen, is, for example, arrested for queries over child abuse or something like that. You know, I've been part of a church where that happened completely out of the blue. How does the church respond in that situation? If you haven't thought it through beforehand, you're going to be in a big pickle and there'll be three or four days of chaos while you work it out, whereas actually it's possible to think some of this stuff through. What happens when someone is sectioned on the Mental Health Act and taken to the local hospital? Who's involved? Who can visit? How, how does all that kind of thing work out? And also, the last one is perhaps the most important, is that the culture and the ethos of the church is an ongoing journey, valuing everybody, addressing everyone's needs. You know, sometimes it's like there's some people who seem to have made it and they are, you know, in the team, on the platform, the favoured few, the ones who are sort of, quote, going for it, who are radical, who are out there, etc. And whilst I wouldn't want to detract from celebrating those people who are doing particular things, and that's really exciting, a serious consequence of that is that other people feel less useful and other people feel even more worthless and perhaps they were struggling with their self-esteem. So if you're going to have a championing culture... We've got to work out how we're going to do that without making the other two-thirds of the church feel worse. Guilt is not a motivator. You know, trying to keep up with the crowd is... These are not great motivators. They're short-term motivators, and then people fall away. They leave the church, etc., 
and the church thinks they're doing a great job because they've got 10, 15 people who are going for it. They're not noticing the people who are slipping out because they feel they cannot contribute or compete to that kind of atmosphere. So with this sort of, yeah, let's go for it, go for Jesus kind of thing, we, we, we've got to sort of work out how that comes across if you're having a bad day or a bad year or a bad five years, okay, because... David spent a long time in the wilderness. Jeremiah spent a long time in the pit. You know, there's large parts of the Bible that are about wilderness experiences, people struggling, uh, some of the prophets you read about, their kinds of journey. It's not all success and stars and glory. You know, this is an ongoing journey. As someone says, if you're going to get from one mountaintop to the next mountaintop, you've got to go through the valley. And I think we need to understand that sort of journey approach to things. Okay. There's something about, you know, the church needs to be there, eliminating stigma around mental health, embracing this more sort of mature spirituality that I've talked about. You know, we all know that as we grow up, you go through difficult... I mean, I've got two young children at the moment. It's brilliant, but it means I can't do half the stuff I used to do. If I'm not careful, I feel inadequate, as though I'm not a good enough Christian, etc. And a mature spirituality is one that will understand and work with his resonances rather than giving quick answers like, oh, you just need to get plugged into church more. That, that's not always possible for, for everybody at different stages. And thinking about you know, good theology, good psychology, good, good bad theology is it's all about me. It's all about me getting my... Um, financial solution or my health back or something. I, I liked what Judah was sort of saying last night, actually. It's not that you're praying for relief from problem X. It's that you're praying for an encounter with God. What does it say? Seek first these things and everything else will be added later. But if you seek the other things, that's not what it's about. It's about seeking God first. So, so good theology there. And let, let's also have good psychology. I think sometimes we can have sort of pop psychology in, in the church. You know, I've got a favorite Bible verse, you know, about the Father heart of God or something. And everyone needs to hear it. And it's kind of the latest kind of thing that goes around and sort of pop psychology sermons get preached. Good psychology, good psychology, uh, theology is about the whole of the um, gospel message. Okay. And I'm going to skip that, that last one there. Okay. So I'll leave it up there. I deliberately wanted to sort of stop early because I want to take a good few questions today. And at the end, I'm just going to, I'm just going to play a song uh, that we can perhaps just sort of listen to to finish, which perhaps summarize some of those things together. Um, in terms of taking questions, you know, perhaps we can look at some of those things you were sharing earlier. But can, can I just say, first of all, can you kind of keep them shortish and I'll just repeat them because I don't think we can probably get a microphone to everybody. Okay, so I'll stop there. I mean, just pop your hands up if you've got any questions that you want to ask. Yeah, lady there, I saw first. Yeah. Okay, so I just... Just repeat it for some of those, you know, someone at your church who's in the, in the forces in, in a war zone has come back with quite PTSD and, you know, the counseling doesn't seem to be helping. I think two things, you know, first of all, don't belittle what you're doing at the moment. What you're doing is you're praying. It's tremendously important. You know, battles start on our knees. So, so the praying is really important. And just because we're not quite seeing it yet doesn't mean you should stop praying. Um, secondly, you're befriending, you're supporting him, perhaps helping out with practical kind of day-to-day stuff, housing, shopping, lifts, places, whatever it is, you know, carry on doing that. Um, in terms of actually sort of taking the next step forward, if, if you know, the counselling he's received hasn't worked, um, 
I think what I wouldn't do is that's not necessarily a place to start playing amateur psychologist, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're not, but don't start doing the therapy yourself. But what you can do is think about joining up the two halves of his world. So he's got a whole bunch of stuff going on in the church, which is great. He's probably also seeing a number of people from the NHS. Why not join those two together? Because it can sometimes see on these two different worlds. So he's getting secular counseling or CBT, perhaps getting medication over there. And then in the church, it's over here. Let's join those two things together. And certainly I know as a psychiatrist, when someone from the family or the church comes to the appointment, it's brilliant because I know I'm not having to manage this situation all by myself. So go along to appointments, make sure that if there's some kind of six monthly review or annual review that one of his main, main carers or main supports in the church is invited along. So let's bring those two sides of the world together. The NHS wants that and A, legally has to respect that. So it's something called the care program approach. Um, I, I'm just going to stop you there because I'm going to take some other questions if that's okay. All right? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so demonic oppression, demonic possession, those kinds of things that were going on. Um, yes, I believe in both of them. Um, I have to. I'm a Christian. Okay, and I think they both exist. Um, what I would say is that um, we need to find a balance between saying everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. Everything started at the fall. Everything's going to be sorted out at the end of time. So, you know, everything is spiritual to a certain extent. But it's not always there. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is not something you do, but I do know some Christians who want to look for demonic possession or oppression in everything. I think what I would say is that demonic possession is relatively rare. Personally, in my life, I think I've only met it twice. Now, I could be missing it, but I've met two of my patients who I've actually thought, yes, I think this person is actually possessed. I've met a lot of people in whom there's definitely... It's, it's more than just a background spiritual issue. There's something more evil about it, whether you call it demonic oppression or whatever. And my general approach to this sort of thing is to say the answer is good deliverance ministry. And I particularly use the word deliverance ministry rather than exorcism. I think if you're going in with the word exorcism, it's like, I'm going to get this thing out. And, you know, it, it can all get messy, rather embarrassing, etc. My theology is that the power is in the name of Jesus, so good deliverance ministry should actually be relatively low-key. I sometimes think the high churches, such as the Anglo-Catholics and the Catholics, who have uh, a liturgy of deliverance, actually do deliverance ministry quite well because they are full of faith. All of the faith is in, in you know, they, they use the holy water as their symbol. They go in there, it's faithful, the name of Jesus is there, and they have tremendous results. Um, and I think we need to sort of go with that rather than sort of getting into the shouting, the rolling around on the floor, that kind of stuff. And there's, there's, there's two reasons for that. Like I say, first of all, I think the power is in the name of Jesus. And my second reason is that I think many people who've got to the point of going for deliverance ministry have been embarrassed in an awful lot of situations where they've been prayed for. And perhaps embarrassing them again in that kind of way is not the first thing we ought to be doing. So... You know, a good model of deliverance ministry, which um, International House of Prayer in Kansas, very charismatic, very good, evil-focused church. They have a very simple model of deliverance ministry. And what they say is, first of all, ask the person what's going on. Is this just distress or is it evil? <laughs> Secondly, discern in the spirit. Do you think there is some evil here that needs to be prayed into rather than just the person, generally speaking, prayed for? If the answer to those questions is both no, you just bless the person and move on. 
You don't go hunting something that is, is, is not ready, if that makes sense. The second thing you do is you just maybe pray for, get some people around, perhaps someone who's done it before, and in a relatively matter-of-fact way, you spend some time in deliverance prayer, perhaps half an hour, maybe an hour, but I would suggest that to a certain extent, less is, is the right way to go at this time. And if nothing's happening, nothing's happening, you stop. You pray a prayer of blessing, move on, perhaps think about it again in a few weeks' time. That, that's the right way, I think, to do deliverance ministry rather than the person being put in situations they don't want, etc., etc. Um, in terms of sort of where it fits with mental illness, I'd point you to when we did the conference at HTB, the Beautiful Mind Conference just over 12 months ago, one of the seminars was entirely on demons, do they, don't they, what if, etc. So I'd encourage you to listen to the audio from that, and Jonathan spends an hour of a seminar on that question. Okay, something from over here. Yeah. Yeah. So do do one in four people have mental illness? I mean, I think it's one of those sort of bandied around statistics. I think it's a convenient statistic as people say, oh, every family in the land is going to have one person. I think, I mean, my understanding is it is percentages. So, for example, the prevalence rate for severe depression is, depending on what papers you read, two or three percent. So that's not one in four. The prevalence for sort of a more mild depression, for example, a postnatal depression, pretty common, probably 10, 15%, something like that. Um, Some kind of stress that perhaps leads you to take time off work for a week or two, possibly see a counsellor, that sort of thing. We're getting towards one in four. So I don't think the one in four figure is that wrong, but if it is one in four, it's definitely the milder end of mental illness. Severe mental illness is the single figures, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So in, in the NHS, you know, if I, think, if I think there's a big spiritual component, what do I do about it? I mean, the first answer is working for the NHS is absolutely fantastic. And being a psychiatrist is great in this regard because every single patient I see, one of my questions is, do you have a faith to help you at a time like this? How does your spirituality fit into this? Because spirituality is a big part of mental health. Now, I'm talking about spirituality with a small s as opposed to Christianity, deliverance, etc. I think, but certainly the first questions about spirituality, it's very easy to have as a psychiatrist. In actual fact, on my pro forma that I fill in when I see a new patient, there's a box for it. So that's brilliant. I ask everybody about it. And I think, you know, if you go and see a mental health professional and your spirituality is not a topic of discussion, they're doing their job wrong. Because quite clearly, if you're a person of significant faith, it's going to be involved, either for good or for bad. Sometimes your spirituality is a positive force. Sometimes it's a negative force. Perhaps you've... Um, taken on your parents' religion and, you know, you need to work it out for yourself or something. Um, so, so it's actually really easy for me to ask questions. If, if I think there's something sort of more going on, I tend to go along with the line that actually my best contribution to this person is as their psychiatrist, not as their healer, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, I may sort of say do you think prayer would 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 be important for this but I, I generally speaking I wouldn't I wouldn't sort of pray at the end of a consultation it's not because I'd be worried about doing that and I have done that a couple of times but I kind of feel that I'd actually rather make sure they're getting their input as well as what I'm doing rather than the spiritual taking up all of our consultation 
Um, so I would certainly encourage them to be getting involved in their local church. We've got chaplains at every hospital. I'd be getting the chaplains involved. And we've got two fantastic chaplains at the hospital I work with. And they are on the ward where I work every single week and are heavily involved in, in that aspect of care. So, And we'll... It depends on the chaplain, obviously, but, but certainly deliverance ministry and, and prayer is, is part of what they do. And I think most chaplains understand that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So as, as Christians, how should we view NLP, neurolinguistic programming, acupuncture, that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think, you know, there's, there's two sides to that. One is that they're often seen as Eastern and therefore sort of bad. Um, my reply to that is that actually a lot of the stuff that we are very happy with, such as an operation or uh, a medication that's been scientifically proved by a randomized controlled trial or something like that, is equally Western. And Jesus was neither Eastern or Western. If anything, he was more Eastern than Western. So, so just because something's Eastern, um, that doesn't bother me. Okay, just because it, it doesn't respond to scientific evaluation and there's no evidence for it and it seems to be sort of Eastern and mystical or something, that doesn't bother me in the slightest because I'm equally sceptical of the hard science, which is only relying on observations that can be made in the material world. Um, so I think we have to kind of sort of say, well, what's going on here? Is it actually idolatry of, of, of some kind. And I think sometimes things, that, I mean, for example, take acupuncture as an example. I think when you get into the kind of acupuncture or the kind of hypnotism that is encouraging you to engage with spirit guides or is explicitly tapping into ley lines or energy lines running through the body, I think that for me is difficult territory. Now, I certainly don't know anything about everything about Chinese medicine. I also know that I don't know everything about the brain. So if sticking needles in somebody without the idolatry works, personally, I don't have a problem with that. And I, I realize that's not necessarily a mainstream Christian view. But if you're asking my opinion, I don't have a problem with certain types of acupuncture, simple hypnosis. You know, I think I'd encourage you to look for someone who's a member of the British Association of Clinical Hypnosis who would just be doing effectively advanced relaxation with degrees of hypnosis, not encouraging Eastern hypnosis, if that makes sense. Neurolinguistic programming, again, I mean, there's a whole list of these different things, but that would be how, how I would think about it. Don't get put off by the Eastern thing. Another good thing is, for example, things around mindfulness, meditation. You know, we're told that all these things are Buddhist practices, and you talk about Zen Buddhism and Western Buddhism, and, you know, the Buddhist temple down the road is offering classes in mindfulness. Read the Church Fathers. They're all over mindfulness. St. Ignatius, the Desert Fathers, that kind of stuff. They were big into meditation, mindfulness, contemplation, that kind of stuff. So some of this stuff we actually need to sort of get back from the Buddhists, if that makes sense. Okay? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so if you're a therapist or a counsellor and you want some supervision, should you go to a Christian or not? I, to a certain extent, I don't think it matters. I think the first thing I say is go to someone good. Um, the advantages of going to someone who's a Christian is that you can get the Christian angle on it. The disadvantage of going to see someone who's a Christian is that you can slip into shorthand and never actually really think it through. Um, if you're really interested in this, on the Minosol website is the, the um, doctoral thesis of a lady called Tara Gormley who looked at this very question for her um, doctorate in clinical psychology thesis, G-O-R-M-L-E-Y. And her conclusion actually is that, to a certain extent, you're better having a non-Christian supervisor because you've actually got to use your noggin 
and really get specific rather than just trot out Bible verses. And I know, and I think to a certain extent, I say this to people as well who are struggling themselves with depression, anxiety, that kind of stuff. Do you go and see a Christian therapist or a non-Christian therapist? Generally speaking, specificity is the enemy of depression because depression is, you know, the black dog. It's like wading through treacle, etc. And the more you can be specific and really think about what you're thinking, the better. And sometimes that's easier to do with someone who doesn't share your faith because you actually have to state what you believe. I mean, this is assuming that the person is not going to poo-poo your faith. I think if they're poo-pooing your faith, that's slightly different. But if the person is a wise, experienced counsellor or supervisor who's not a Christian, I would say go for it, particularly if you click with them, particularly if they're sensitive to your faith. Hey, you might even introduce them to Jesus. So, um, so I don't have a problem with that at all. I, I don't think Christians should always see Christians. Yeah, last, last question. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not saying everything's okay. What I'm saying is those things are just not necessarily evil, just because um, they don't fit into um, our usual NHS approaches. I mean, I think, I think you, you, you know, you can hear stories of people who've done yoga or done acupuncture and lost their faith. You can likewise hear stories of people who got a job in the city and lost their faith. But we don't say that you shouldn't go and get a job in the city. So I think you know the most important thing in here is first of all seek first God's kingdom, and just because something doesn't necessarily found in the bible i mean your chair is not in the bible doesn't mean you can't use on it use it and sit on it and trust it um your next door neighbor who you let the kids play with i I think i mean i agree with you i I, you can tell me stories i can tell you stories the other way i think we're going to get into story exchanging if we're not careful and definitely no 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 i don't think you do need to ask and i think you know if you're taking homeopathy you need to say to the homeopathy person what were you doing when you prepared this tincture for me? You know, I think there's questions to ask. I mean, I have absolutely no idea how homeopathy works. I'm sure some of it is filled with unhelpful spirituality. I'm sure some of it maybe is science that we just haven't discovered yet. And we're going to dis- I mean, we don't know how antidepressants and anti-epileptic medication works, but I do that. So how could I be rude about hypnotherapy or, or acupuncture? But what I think we can do is try to discern the spirits and try to keep focused on God in the middle. Okay. What I want to do is just draw us to a close, and I think, you know, there's been a whole bunch of quite interesting discussions, to a certain extent, academic discussions. I think the academic discussions are important, but I want to sort of finish by just drawing us back to sort of where we're at and why this seminar series is here, which is about tackling the unspoken issues, about um, dealing with, you know, what happens. Uh, Judah was saying it last night, wasn't he? Okay, so... um, People who did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a difference. And he was sort of talking about, you know, how that worked out with his father and how he still prayed in faith, but somehow was able to sort of square that. And I thought I might just um, introduce you to an artist, uh, a songwriting artist who I really like called Michael Card. And he's produced an album recently called The Hidden Face of God. And it's all about how does this kind of stuff work out? And he, he spent a lot of time with African-American Christians who grew up from the slavery backgrounds in, in America. And he says, you know, if you want to understand the parts of the Bible that are about the exile, that are about the years of silence in between the Old and New Testament, that are about the wilderness periods... Talk to the African-American Christians who've got that slavery heritage. They know what it means to sing the song of the Lord in a strange land. They, they know what it means, you know, by the waters of Babylon. What does that mean? Actually, it means being somewhere in slavery, trapped, not going anywhere, despite praying to God six million different times. So I'll just, I'll just play this song for you, and we'll just finish with that. 
And Lord, we hope this has been helpful in these churches. But Lord, we just want to pray that in that time we would know that um, you are the man of sorrows. You know what is going on in these situations. And though the breaking may remain, although the aching may remain, pray that the breaking does not, Lord. We just want to pray for those who are struggling today, those who are really sort of working through some tough times, perhaps those who've been in the, in the healing tent, in the listening tent, talking to some of the counseling team this week. Father, we pray that you would be with them, that you would show them somewhere at the far end of a tunnel, a light that they can begin to work towards, Lord. And we pray that we as a church would not offer glib solutions, that we wouldn't make people feel even worse than they already feel, but that you would learn as the Holy Spirit does, the alongside presence, the paraclete, that we would learn to walk alongside in this time and therefore offer something of you into the unspoken issues. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.